Thanks for joining us for this week's From the Battlefield to the Boardroom podcast. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one of my conversation with Tom Wolf, author of Out of Uniform, Your Guide to Successful Military to Civilian Career Transition, make sure you go back and listen before beginning part two. In this episode, Tom and I continue to discuss some of the highlights from his book, including do's and don'ts of working with a military recruiter, choosing which job offer to accept, and estimating your market value. If you're listening to this show on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, make sure you subscribe and share with a friend. If you have any questions about this interview or topics for a future podcast, please send me an email at podcast at oriontalent.com. So we talked a little bit earlier about um, working with a recruiter. So obviously you have a recruiting background here at Orion. We are a military recruiting firm. And a lot of times it can open up doors to opportunities that you may not have known about, whether it is a company that you've never heard of or helping you with resume assistance. Um, There's a lot of benefits to it, but I know in your book, you've outlined pretty extensively the do's and don'ts of working with a recruiter. So I would like you to talk a little bit about that here. Uh, Do you want me to go over all of them? (laughs) Um, Maybe just a brief, (laughs) maybe, okay, how about we do this? What are your top do's and top don'ts? Maybe just a couple of your top ones. Okay. Um, Because we want people to still read the book, so we don't want to give it all away. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, First, let me start off by saying um, I believe that having a professional, experienced recruiting firm assisting you in your job search is a no-brainer. The good ones know what they're doing. They do it well. They have set the stage, they have done the homework, Um, they have, there's an old adage about um, if you're gonna chase somebody, chase somebody who wants to be caught, you're more likely to catch them. Well, what the recruiting firms can do, they represent clients that are already predisposed to hire military personnel. the proof has already been there. They've had success. They want to do this. If, if you approach a company that doesn't already hire people out of the military, you might be able to convince them that they should. But once you're done doing that, you now have to convince them that they should hire you among all those there are to pick from. Well, if you're using a recruiting firm, using a firm like Orion or their competitors, um, they typically tend to be friendly competitors, but they're competitors nonetheless. Using a firm like that, they have already set the stage for you. They have already identified companies that are predisposed to hire your profile. Your job then is to just dispose them to hire you. So that's One of the big advantages of recruiting firm is they are doing that advanced legwork for you. Plus, if you look at any successful job search, that the person who's accepting a job, that person, if he or she is is, um, doing the right thing, he or she will look in their rear view mirror and he or she will see a person in in their rear view mirror that was instrumental in helping them obtain that job. 
Now, in my book, I refer to that person as either Uncle Harry or Aunt Mary. Beauty of the recruiting firm is that if you don't have or if you can't identify an Uncle Harry or an Aunt Mary within a particular company, if that company is being represented by the recruiting firm, then you have a built-in Uncle Harry or Aunt Mary. And it even gets better than that. If your representative, your recruiter at the firm, that person, their reputation depends upon how you do. So they want you to succeed. They're going to make sure that you're doing everything you possibly can to prepare for and properly execute the search. And they're going to make sure that you're making the decision for the right reasons. Now, sadly, not all recruiting firms are created equal. Some of them are very good at what they do. Some of them are not so good at what they do. But Megan, what I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna go through here and cherry pick a few of these and share them with um, our audience. And uh, hopefully this will help them when it comes time to incorporating a recruiting firm into their job search toolbox. Okay, great. I think one of the most important things to do is you are in charge of your job search, nobody else. You're, if you're using a recruiting firm and if you end up in a great job, you pat yourself on the back and you thank the people that helped you. But if your job search fails or you end up in the wrong job, then you look in the mirror and that's who you blame. You're in charge of your search, not somebody else. Accordingly, I caution you to stay away from recruiting firms that will not allow you to do any job searching beyond what they do for you. When I was in the recruiting business, I placed approximately seven out of every 10 candidates I worked with. The other three, they got great jobs, but they found those jobs independent of me. Now, I could have looked at that as a loss, but I didn't. I looked at that as potential. So although I didn't place them, they did become uh, integral to business development. Um, so that gets back to my point of work. You should work with a placement company that that augments or supplements or enhances your individual efforts, but does not replace them. That's that's one don't. Um, Here's another don't. Don't sign anything. No contracts, no agreements of understanding. Um, if, if they're asking you to sign something, then there's probably a, an issue there. It's a danger signal. What you should do, you should ask them to share with you their client list, the companies that they represent. Uh, they're going to be proud of those clients. Um, ask them to share with you examples of previous successful placements, individuals with backgrounds similar to yours that happen to go to work for those companies. Um, don't uh, backstop or backdoor the efforts of the, of the placement company. The recruiting firm that you're working with, if they mention a company to you, that they're not 
encouraging you to go out and apply to that company. They're encouraging you to go out and research that company, uh, to get a sense of that company, to perhaps prepare for the interview. But if you apply to that company in parallel with the recruiting firm helping you, you might be creating a conflict of interest that causes all parties to suffer. I do work with a placement company that has strong credibility and history in the marketplace. Work with one that has been around for um, many years, one that's got a solid reputation, uh, and work with one where either your point of contact, you know, he or she can be preferably experienced at the job, but even if he or she is new at the job, make sure you're working with a firm where you know that your recruiter is going to have backup from the wealth of talent and experience in the rest of the firm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Do you, are those the highlights or do you have any other ones you'd like to share? I think, I think, uh, I think we should probably uh, call those the highlights and save okay. them for another time. <laughs> okay, great. And like I said, we want everyone to read the book, so you'll definitely find more of those in the book in some more detail. So um, that's, I think that's good enough for now. But w one thing that a lot of recruiting firms do is they will participate in either job fairs or hiring conferences. Now, what we do at Orion is the hiring conferences, but I know that there are the job fairs out there too. Um, so I wanted to talk with you a little bit about the differences and maybe even the advantages of, you know, one going to one over another. So um, a brief excerpt from your book, you kind of lay out the scenario with a bunch of what ifs. So what if attendance for both candidates and companies was by invitation only? What if the employer pays a fee only when a hire was actually made? What if candidates were screened in advance based on both qualifications and interests? What if the organization sponsoring the event knew enough about the needs of both candidates and companies that they have pre-scheduled one-on-one interviews, eliminating the need for both the central exhibition area and standing in line? What if both parties knew in advance what was in store for them? And then basically you wrap that up saying, well, that does exist and that's a hiring conference. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that now after setting the stage for, you know, what the difference is. I refer to that as, as the perfect storm, Megan. Um, if you think about how nice would it be if you could gather in one facility or one building um, dozens of high quality potential employers that were seeking high quality military candidates? And what if in that same building you could gather together a large quantity of high quality military candidates that were interested in working for companies such as those? And then you have the, the system, the functionality to be matchmaker and get the right people talking to the right companies that is a very time efficient, um, very expeditious way to accomplish a lot of information gathering, a lot of interviewing, um, and, and a lot of fact finding in a very short period of time. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of job seekers get job fairs and conferences confused, but they really are a lot different. And I always think, um, you know, I've talked with people in the past that have said maybe job fairs are a little bit more advantageous maybe in the beginning, kind of the discovery phase while you're still researching yourself, just wanting to know what's out there. Whereas a hiring conference is something that once you've decided what you want to do, it's really going to get you more bang for your buck. So going there is probably going to get you a lot more leads than participating in a job fair. You know, Megan, that's a very good point. I had not really considered that, but I agree with you. The job fair, which is much more of a an open house, broad exposure, um, stick your hand out, wander around, uh, elevator pitch, meet somebody, talk about a company, talk about a job. That's that's a great thing to do early on, as you said, as you're in that discovery mode. What options might I have? But then as you move on to the actual uh, career conference, the hiring event, now there's a presumption that you've done some focusing, you've, you've narrowed down the field a little bit, you're, you're much more in touch with perhaps not the job title, but at least the general category of job that you're focusing on, in which case the, the recruiting company will do a better job of matchmaking for you because you're doing a better job of sharing with them what really matters to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, skipping ahead a little bit, because like I said, there's lots of steps in the transition phase, and we're only covering um, a few of them from the discovery phase, the interview, and then now choosing which opportunity to accept. So we talked a little bit before about during the discovery phase, how you could list what you um, wanted in a job and what some of your requirements were and things like that. But when you move forward and you're actually in the position to where you have the opportunity to accept a role, um, pay is a big consideration. And I know a lot of military members after they're transitioning off of active duty, they expect a certain pay based on what they were being paid in the military. And in your book, you have a formula for estimating your market value. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's um, yes. And, you know, the subject of salary and compensation, you know, it's it's funny when when people are giving individuals guidance on how to properly interview and job search. We're always taught that we should, you know, never talk about money, save it to the very end. Um, that that works in theory, but unfortunately, individual job seekers have certain minimum requirements, and and companies have certain ranges. So at some point. We have to make sure that we have a, a an overlap, a match, at least, you know, my, my range is A to B and, or in your range is B to C. At least we overlap B. That keeps the door open. Paychecks. People in the military get a little um, spoiled is not the right word. A little bit. Uh, um, they come to believe that. Time in service and time in grade is what determines how much money you get paid. And, and they really don't have a choice because that's exactly how the military does it. Your military paycheck is based upon time in service, time in grade. And of course, there are certain specialty um, and proficiency pays and uh, bonuses that come along. But, but generally speaking, it's you get paid based upon attendance. You don't get paid based upon performance. 
Now in the civilian world, especially in the for-profit corporate sector, you get paid based upon value added. Now here's the rub. On your very first day working for a new company, what value are you adding on day one? Well, the answer is none on day one. So I guess they should pay you nothing on day one. <laughs> well, nobody's gonna take that job. So therefore, companies have decided, well, rather than pay you based upon value added, we're going to pay you based upon anticipated value added. So here's your starting salary. Let's just say they offer you $80,000. They're saying, we believe you are going to add $80,000 worth of value to this organization during the next, call it 12 months, if that's the review cycle. Guess what? 12 months later, if you've exceeded their expectations, you'll get a pay raise. If you've met their expectations, everything is square. If you fall short of their expectations, you might have a problem. Now, nobody wants to take a paycheck. Here's the problem. If I ask you, what does a typical 03 over 6 in the military make? What is his or her paycheck? Well, we have a problem. Are we talking about an infantry officer in the Marine Corps? Are we talking about a combat deployed uh, company commander in the Army? Are we talking about an aviator? Are we talking about a nuclear submariner? Are we talking about special ops? Uh, are we talking about someone who is receiving retention or proficiency pay? All of a sudden, the same person, the 03 over 06, the salary they're making is all over the place. It's not equalized. So how are we supposed to figure out what we're going to get paid as a civilian? Well, in the book, there is a formula. It looks rather complicated, but it's not. Um, the, the simple version of the formula is this. You should take what you're currently making. You should uh, gross it up by the amount of non-taxable income that you're receiving. You take that, that number, and then you should subtract any particular proficiency pay that you're getting that is not relevant to the new job. For example, if you get hired by Amazon.com, unless they're paying you to fly the airplane, the fact that you're getting flight pay doesn't matter. <laughs> So subtract out your non-relevant professional pay and take the final figure and bracket it plus or minus 20%. And that plus or minus 20% is a pretty big range. And here's why. Where's the job located? Manhattan, New York City or Manhattan, Kansas? How many people out there are qualified for this job? 5,000 or 50? supply and demand. So that's why you're going to find the variance on that final figure, plus or minus 20%. It, it's not as simple as I'm trying to make it, but I, I do know that it matters to people. So I did attempt to come up with some mathematical formula that will help most people at least come up with a range of expectation when they kick off their job search. 
And, you know, another thing is that sometimes you might accept a little bit of a lower pay for the growth potential. Um, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with knowing what are your must-haves and being flexible in certain areas. So maybe if the potential seems like it would be a good place for you to grow in your career and you know you'd have the potential to make more money later down the road, maybe initially you'd be more flexible on the starting salary. And just a little excerpt from your book that I thought was a very, very good way to put it, and I think a lot of people would not necessarily have considered it this way. You say, if you expect your current pay to be reflected in your first civilian paycheck, then you must convince your next employer that you will be just as valuable to that organization on your first day of employment as you were to the military when you separated. I think that's a really good way to look at it because um, a lot of times transitioning military members don't necessarily know their market value. And like you said, they get used to a certain amount that they were making in the military that is based on your time in service and time in rank. So it's, it's not necessarily the way that things work in the civilian world. In fact, it's quite a bit different than the way things work here in the civilian world. And so I think that the way that you've explained it really is an all-encompassing um, guide to how they should, you know, maybe even estimate what their market value would be after separating. And you know, Megan, we can take what you just said and loop it back to earlier when we talked about the square peg and the square hole. If if you find yourself being hired and you're the square peg and they're plugging you into the square hole, that company does not have to spend any money to train and develop you. They're they're taking virtually no risk in hiring you because you already know how to do the job. Therefore, your starting salary is going to be maximized when the square peg fits the square hole. But sadly, you're being hired for your experience. What happens when the peg no longer fits the hole? So to your point, yes, sometimes it's worth sacrificing a little bit of upfront comp because you're putting yourself on a learning curve in, in, in a growth organization in which you will recover the delta very quickly based upon company performance and your performance. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very well said. So I'd like to get your insight on a couple of other transition topics that we see all of the time, um, not necessarily related to the book, but I'm sure you can um, draw on some of the insight in there. So one of the challenges that we see um, that's a little bit unique is someone who's transitioning after more than 20 years in the military. Do you have any advice for that transitioning military member? Yes, I do. Um... The 20-plus the year retiree um, tends to have a diff more difficult time uh, in, in the job search than his or her younger, younger um, associates. The, the word retiree in and of itself sends a, a signal that perhaps not what we want to send. I'm retired. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means I'm not working anymore. Well, if you're not working anymore, then why are you interviewing with my company? Well, a lot, many retirees get pigeonholed as um, done, and we know that that's not necessarily the case. Some retirees are looking for a new career, and some retirees are looking for a job. Now, there's a difference, and, and I'm not saying that one is better or worse than the other. It just depends upon what is important to the individual at that time. Uh, 
Now, if companies, if you're looking for a job at the 20 year point, then you better be the square hole and you better find, a, better be the square peg and look for that square hole because that company wants that 20 plus years of experience. That's why they're hiring you. Now, what if you want more than that? What if you don't want to be treated as if your, your job longevity period of your life is over? What if you want to start something new and, and throw another 20 plus years at it? Well, you're going to have to overcome a stigma. You're going to have to make sure that you demonstrate to the potential employer that you are just as flexible as you used to be. And, and there's frequently a problem here. If you look at someone who's been in six to 10 years, and if you look at their family, you know, perhaps they're married, perhaps they have children, perhaps their spouse has a job, um, perhaps they are more portable, relocatable, more flexible than they are going to be later in life. Many retirees are in a situation where they find themselves not able to be as flexible, especially flexible when it comes to either geography or money as they're more junior. And notice I didn't say younger because that's not allowed, but more junior counterparts. So overcoming the stereotype, being more flexible, um, being able to understand the difference between being hired for your potential versus your experience and what that might look like in terms of initial responsibility and what it might therefore look like in terms of initial paycheck. Those are a few of the issues that the 20 plus year uh, military job seeker faces in, in this market. And as you mentioned earlier, it's easier to be flexible early on in your career than it is um, toward the end of your career when you've already retired from the military. You just, there are a lot of other factors at play. Yes. Um, what about advice that you would give to someone on um, if they're considering the reserves in regards to their career search? I think we have to be very careful with this subject, Megan, because there's a public law that will that disallows organizations from um, discriminating against military personnel because of a reserve affiliation. So what you need to do as a job seeker is you need to first decide on your list of wants and needs is staying in the reserve a want or is it a need? Now, if it's a need, then you're going to have to do your homework and find out um, in advance what that company's particular uh, policies are regarding individual employees and their reserve commitment. A couple of good sources for that type of information, um, the website Glassdoor and the website Indeed, they do a good job of defining corporate culture and you just might be able to get some information about a company's culture with respect to reserve affiliation. Um, if, however, staying in the reserves does not matter whatsoever, then we can move on from that point and it's not an issue. But if it's a want, not a need, now you have to say to yourself, okay, 
Am I going to let the fact that I want to stay in the reserves have an impact upon my job search at the front end, or should I allow that to have an impact on my job search at the back end? As I said earlier, let's fast forward. Your job search is over. You have two offers. They both meet your needs. One of them will allow you to stay in the reserves without any, you won't have to sacrifice your personal vacation days to do it. And the other company has a fully funded reserve policy that does not impact your leave time. You've just found your tiebreaker. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's definitely a good one to keep in mind. Do you have a specific transition success story that you think can paint a good picture of what a successful transition might look like? Yes. Um, I have I have one, and I think this will tie together several threads that um, that we've talked about today. Um, many years ago, I received a phone call from one of my candidates a couple of days in advance of a career conference. Um, his name is Dave. Dave was a nuclear trained submarine officer stationed at uh, Kings Bay, Georgia. Dave called me up and he I gave him his list of companies. I don't remember exactly what companies, but probably sounded something like this. Um, Duke Power and Light, General Electric Power, um, Michelin, Ford Motor Company, and Capital One. So Dave, he, he wrote that down. Um, he went off to do his research. I sent him uh, job descriptions of all four, all five of those companies and the jobs. And then on the day of the, of the career conference, Dave shows up and goes, Tom, um, one of these interviews doesn't make any sense. And I said, well, what do you mean? I go, well, you've got me, I, I have an electrical engineering degree. I'm a Navy nuke and you have me interviewing with Capital One, which is a consumer products finance company. He says, I don't know anything about that. And I said, well, Dave, no, you don't. I said, but if you read what Capital One is looking for in terms of the background, the education, the the skill set, they love to hire Navy nukes. And he goes, why? And I go, well, because of analytical abilities, uh, working under pressure, um, quality assurance, high standards, operational reliability. Um, and, and he started nodding. And he said, okay, well, I guess I don't want to cancel that interview after all. So Dave goes off and interviews with those five companies. And lo and behold, he ends up going to work for Capital One. So that's, that's my closing story today. It loops back nicely to where we started. Don't allow yourself to be pigeonholed. Try not to be predisposed to a particular job or category of job just because somebody else says you should. Put yourself in a position where you're tracking down everything you're qualified for, prepare well, get help, use a recruiting firm in addition to other resources, and maximize the chances that you'll end up in the right job the first time. Mm-hmm. That's a great story, and it goes back to, like you said, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So maybe Dave didn't think that he was a good fit for that, but you having the knowledge of the position and what the company is looking for, um, you know, you knew that he was a good fit. And you mentioned earlier the um, example of having an Uncle Harry or Aunt Mary, and I've even heard it referred to as 
the recruiting company playing matchmaker between the candidate and the employer. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it too. That's an excellent analogy. And, and the good matchmakers are the ones that dig into both parties' needs and expectations before they make the match. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom, you shared a lot of great advice today on the podcast, but is there any final advice that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, yes. Uh, remember the, and, and th- th- this amplifies something I said earlier, um, keep, keep in, in mind the importance of the interviewer's perspective. Um, doing a good job search is a very selfish event and it needs to be because it's a major step in your career. But don't lose sight of the fact that the interviewer, the recruiter, the person that's helping you, you know, that individual also has certain requirements and needs and you will do a much better job of developing interviewing empathy Um, perhaps even making a friend, but whether you make a friend or not, you're going to convert who starts off an adversary and you'll convert them into an advocate and they will shepherd you and your resume through the process and increase the odds that you'll end up where you want to be. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. Now, the last thing I will leave our listeners with, how can people connect with you if they want to follow up with you or learn more about the book? I thank you for that. Um, If you'd like to learn more about my book, which just came out last month, the second edition, um, you can go to the book's website, which is www.out-of-uniform.com, second edition. You don't need to put the second edition there, but when you, you'll probably end up at Amazon and there is a first edition, find the second edition. If you'd like to talk to me directly, um, you can do so via my uh, LinkedIn page. Pretty easy to find. Just type in Tom Wolf and Career Coach. And if you just want to call me, 910-842-4594. And Megan, thank you so much for the invitation. I've, I've enjoyed our time together on the phone today. And I hope this ends up being uh, helpful for your uh, listenership. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you, Tom. We will have you back at some point. I'm sure it was great speaking with you. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for listening to this episode of Orion's From the Battlefield to the Boardroom podcast. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have any feedback, please send me an email at podcast at oriontalent.com. Our goal is to help all military job seekers through their transition and beyond. So make sure you share our show with your friends. See you next time.